Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin and go to Glasgow, Scotland, where the UN Climate Conference COP26 is due to begin Monday, with President Biden and most of his cabinet in attendance, minus the leaders of China and Russia. Joining us from Glasgow is Daphne Wysham, the Chief Executive Officer of Methane Action and a Fellow at the Centre for Sustainable Economy, and we will discuss how the virulent global warming gas methane, which contributes at least half as much warming as CO2, is susceptible to remediation and removal. As the world leaders wrap up the G20 meeting in Rome, where there were plenty of pledges on climate action, but few commitments except to stop the financing of coal plants internationally by the end of the year, there are practical solutions that need to be implemented to remove atmospheric methane, which is at higher concentrations than it has been at for 800,000 years. Then, with the closely watched and neck-and-neck governor's race in Virginia on Tuesday seen as a make-or-break moment for the Democrats, we will speak with Sidney Blumenthal, the best-selling author of The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment and The Permanent Campaign, whose latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856-1860. to He joins us to discuss his article at The Guardian, The Republicans' Racial Culture War is Reaching New Heights in Virginia. Then finally, after the still unresolved and crippling debate amongst Democrats over whether to spend $3.5 trillion on infrastructure over 10 years, we'll explore the contrast that we are likely to spend close to $10 trillion over 10 years on the Pentagon, and that doesn't even require a debate at all. Joining us is Andrew Coburn, the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine and the author of Kill Chain, The Rise of the High-Tech Assassins, as well as the New York Times editor's choice, Rumsfeld and the Threat, which destroyed the myth of Soviet military superiority underpinning the Cold War. He joins us to discuss his latest book, Just Out, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. And before we go to our first guest, while background briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can, help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now from Glasgow, Scotland, is Daphne Wysham, the Chief Executive Officer of Methane Action and a Fellow at the Centre for Sustainable Economy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daphne Wysham. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And Monday, the COP26 UN Climate Conference begins, and you are hosting or moderating a event called Beyond Cutting Methane Emissions, Why We Need to Enhance Atmospheric Methane Oxidation. And uh, I take it that the reason that you're concentrating on methane and why it's so important is that it's a much more identifiable, 
global warming gas. We know that it's incredibly virulent compared to CO2. It doesn't last yep. as long in the atmosphere, but it is what something like 100 times more virulent and destructive. But I take it that methane is also susceptible to remediation and removal. And so is that what you're trying to do, alert the world to this is something that's doable? I don't know that there's any technical fix at this point for getting CO2 out of the atmosphere, but getting out of methane out of the atmosphere, well, it's about what contributes about as, half as much warming as carbon dioxide? Well, let's start from the beginning. Um, so, yes, methane is the most potent global warming gas, uh, most important after CO2. It's about 84 times as potent as CO2. Instantaneously, it's over 100 times more potent than CO2. And what has been happening just in the last decade or so is that methane levels have been rising dramatically. And just in 2020, despite the pandemic, um, methane levels continued to skyrocket. So we are in a situation right now where you're right that the, the half-life of methane is roughly a decade. So it does naturally clear itself out of the atmosphere or oxidize itself and, and, and it turns into CO2 and water. However, um, you can think of it, uh, the, the bathtub analogy, we've got so much methane coming into the atmosphere and the natural oxidation process is unable to keep up with the pace of methane so in the atmosphere. So what we're having is warming contributing to more warming. And in particular, uh, as the warming affects the permafrost, as we know, it, it is melting. And in some cases, methane is bubbling up from either shallow subsea permafrost or from permafrost that is on land, and uh, we've heard of these craters being discovered in the Siberian Arctic where it appears to have been uh, a, sort of a methane explosion from, from underground. But what is of serious concern is um, also the, the wetlands. Wetlands are also, um, as they warm, are increasingly releasing more methane. So not only do we have anthropogenic methane emissions to worry about, which contribute of roughly 60% of overall methane levels in the atmosphere. The remaining 40% comes from biogenic sources like wetlands and, and permafrost and, and uh, as well as termites and some other uh, natural sources. As the planet warms, the concern is that the, the biogenic sources could also rise rapidly. So we need an insurance policy against uh, what some people call a methane burst, which could occur and could be a major um, extinction level event. That's the first reason to be focused on methane removal. The second is because uh, only so much anthropogenic methane emissions can be mitigated. Thankfully, the U.S. and the EU have begun the process of engaging on this issue and have called for a 30% reduction overall of anthropogenic methane emissions by 2030. However, the UN Environment Program says we should shoot for 45% by 2030. So 30% is really the, the bare minimum. I would say even 45% uh, is, is you know a minimum. We should shoot for roughly around 50%. Beyond that, it gets very difficult to mitigate the methane emissions, largely because 
the number one source of methane emissions globally is the agricultural sector. The fossil fuel sector is uh, clearly a, a major source of methane, and that needs to be dealt with immediately. And um, there are regulations proceeding in the House and Senate to address that, and EPA is planning on strengthening their guidelines for methane emissions from the fossil fuel sector. But the agricultural sector, um, especially when we're talking about, you know, uh, ruminants in other parts of the world other than the U.S., um, such as um, in Africa or in India or other other parts of, of the globe where they aren't necessarily, um, and they can't be fed a particular feed of, uh, of seaweed or something else to address the methane from their from their digestive processes. Um, it's very difficult to, to mitigate the methane emissions from those ruminants. And of course, there are things like rice paddies that, that emit methane, and that's, that's considered a survival emission. And so we can't get anthropogenic methane emissions to zero anytime soon um, without, without a drastic reduction in population. And so we really do need to be thinking about methane removal and scaling it up now. And the scientists that I'm working with include Rob Jackson, who's on our board from Stanford University, uh, Sir David King, who's uh, one of the top science advisors to uh, the UK government. We've got uh, a scientist from the University of Copenhagen. They have begun the process of looking into ways in which we can enhance the natural oxidative capacity of the atmosphere and thereby accelerate the, and when I say removal, we're not removing the methane and storing it somewhere. We're, that's shorthand for oxidation, enhanced atmospheric methane oxidation. We're essentially just accelerating a process that nature does already um, with the same outcome, which is CO2 and water. So the anthropogenic, the man-made methane releases come from fracking, come from your gas stove and the entire infrastructure of gas, yep. right? The pipelines has yep. never really been a. Yep. I, th I did actually talk to Rob Jackson about this need for a kind of a, a real auditing of the amount of methane that leaks across from gas storage and gas wells and fracking and all the way up to right. the gas stove in your house. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that's a major lift as well. But so yep. the technology is there. And, and I mentioned earlier that as far as I know, there's no technical fix to get rid of CO2. Now, on nuclear submarines, they do because they stay underwater for months at an end and they recycle the air, but you need a nuclear mm -hmm. reactor to do that. So give us a quick sense of the technology that's attainable here that could get rid of methane in the way that nature does. Well, we'll be talking more about this tomorrow on our on our panel here in, in Glasgow. And our panel is part of a Euro European Commission side event that starts at 1 p.m. in it's all virtual, so uh, you can observe, but you do have to register uh, in advance, and you should find our the link to our panel on the EC website. So you'll be hearing from the scientists directly tomorrow, and I am not a scientist. I'm primarily focused on the policy implementation and ensuring that we we create the sort of awareness that is needed and social license for this to be undertaken because this is clearly um, in the interest of humanity overall to avoid 
um, what could be a catastrophic release of methane, um, but also just as a way of, of uh, turning the heat down dramatically um, by perhaps uh, avoiding perhaps a, a rise of around a half a degree Celsius rise in, in temperature by combining methane emissions reductions with enhanced atmospheric methane oxidation. So we are not saying this is an excuse for business to continue as usual. Uh, we need both. We need to both uh, accelerate our reductions in, in methane emissions at their sources. Um, and their sources do include other, other sources other than fossil fuels and, and, and um, agriculture. Of course, waste is a big source, as is biomass burning, um, which is not a renewable form of energy, despite the PR to the contrary. So what are the different types of technologies? There are several that will be profiled tomorrow. Um, and I can give you sort of a rough sketch of them, but as I said, um, you know, I'm not I'm not one of the scientists that could go into much more elaborate detail. Um, but one of them is the one that Rob is working on. Rob Jackson at Stanford is focused focused on something called zeolites that essentially uh, act as sort of a sieve. You have to have an awful lot of air running through the sieve, but the, the sieve, it captures the methane and, again, transforms it into CO2 and water. Another option that one of our science advisors, Dr. Renaud de Richter, out of France, is working on is something called a solar chimney. And they are actually already in use in China for a different purpose, which is cleaning the air of pollutants. And um, essentially, what uh, the way this operates is it's a, it's, it's a chimney that is the heat is being drawn up the chimney sort of through natural convection currents. And via photocatalysis, methane can be oxidized and again turned into CO2 and water, along with other pollutants. So that, that's another idea that's quite exciting, um, solar chimneys. The third one that one of our scientists is working on is something called iron salt aerosols. And this mimics a process that happens naturally when the iron-rich Sahara dust, if you've ever been to Africa, you see how red the, the, the soil is there because it's very rich in iron. And as that dust blows across the Atlantic Ocean, it mixes with salt sea spray and sunshine. And the combination of the chlorine that is released from the salt sea spray and the iron and the UV light oxidizes the methane. And um, this, ha this happens naturally and has happened over millennia. So what they're trying to do is figure out in a lab, how can we mimic this process and potentially use it to withdraw methane from the atmosphere? Ironically, this is actually probably already being done inadvertently as a result of bunker fuels that are used. There's a bit of iron in bunker fuels that are used by ships in the, in the open sea. So the first step is just to observe what's already happening uh, with iron combined with uh, sea salt spray and sunshine. And if, if in turn that results in methane oxidation, then they go to the next step and think about how do we scale up the governance around something like this. And then finally, the, uh, the one that I know the least about, but um, this is another area of research is what they call methanotrophs. And these are... Um, you know, small bacteria that, that eat methane. 
Um, and that is probably most appropriate in places where you have, for example, waste dumps. And you need to uh, spread the methanotrophs over to, to, to deal with the, the methane that's being released. Mm. Well, Daphne, this is um, really encouraging to know that there is work going on to deal with these existential problems that face the planet and the very survival of the planet and humanity itself. And I thank you for joining us from Glasgow. Thank you. And for more information, do please go to methaneaction.org. Indeed. And again, I've been speaking with Daphne Washam, who's the Chief Executive Officer of Methane Action and a fellow at the Center for Sustainable Economy. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the closely watched and neck-and-neck governor's race in Virginia on Tuesday, seen as a make-or-break moment for the Democrats. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sidney Blumenthal, the former assistant and senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. He's been a national staff reporter for The Washington Post, Washington editor and staff writer for The New Yorker. And his books include the bestsellers, The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment and The Permanent Campaign. His latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856 to 1860. And he has an article at The Guardian, The Republicans' Racial Culture War is Reaching New Heights in Virginia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sidney Blumenthal. Thank you, Ian. So, um, actually, I think you could make the case that it's, it's plumbing new depths of idiocy, given that we have a Republican Party that, you know, has been involved with indulging the Pizzagate conspiracies and Jewish space lasers. And it's frankly a party that supports tax cheats and is invested in killing Americans for political gain, encouraging people not to get vaccinated so that Biden can't solve the COVID pandemic. So little wonder that what we're witnessing now in Virginia is this surreal culture wars campaign in which the Republican candidate, Glenn Youngkin, is posing as the defender of school children from the menace of critical race theory. Now, the sad thing is, Sidney, it looks as if, to some extent, this is working for him. What do you think? Well, Glenn Youngkin is somebody who has no background in public life before. He was the co-CEO of the Carlyle Group in Washington, D.C., and was basically uh, forced out of the company because of, uh, as Bloomberg News put it, bad bets, lost billions of dollars. And in that role, he had uh, been a good citizen. And uh, after the George Floyd murder, uh, had joined with other executives at the Carlyle Group urging contributions to um, then AACP, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and so on. But now that he has has decided that he's going to pursue the governorship of Virginia as a, a Republican, 
he has gone over to the dark side and he's resolving his uh, split personality uh, as uh, on the one hand, a fleece vest wearing good guy, neighbor, uh, corporate exec, and he's now a Trumpster. So it has been working for him to attack teaching of critical race theory in the schools in Virginia where it is not taught. I can repeat that. It is not taught in the schools in Virginia. And he has run ads and run a campaign against the teaching of something that is non-existent. But that was not sufficient. So he ramped up and um, he decided uh, to run on the banning of a book. He is a book burner. And the book in question is Beloved by Toni Morrison, a Pulitzer Prize winning book by a Nobel Prize winning black writer, probably the most acclaimed American writer of the last uh, generation. Uh, In 2016, a Republican activist launched a campaign to ban uh, Toni Morrison's book from the schools. Her son had taken an uh, advanced placement English class where it was taught. And apparently he was so upset by the so-called sexual obscenity of the book that um, uh, she uh, got the Republican dominate, then Republican dominated General Assembly of Virginia to uh, say that parents ha- could have a choice of uh, exempting their children from uh, uh, classes in which they found that the material was sexually obscene or objectionable, like Toni Morrison. The governor then, uh, Terry McAuliffe, who is now running again as governor as the Democratic candidate, twice vetoed this book banning uh, bill. And that is now the uh, banner of Glenn Youngkin in Virginia that he's running on. And it appears to have drawn him at least even with Terry McAuliffe and in some polls slightly ahead. So this is a new wedge issue, a new code word for uh, racial politics. Uh, It's a whole new phase. And the Republicans are using Virginia as a laboratory for the 2022 midterms. And that's the overarching danger here. And this so-called Fairfax County mother who objected to to Toni Morrison's book, Beloved, and her delicate flower son, Blake Murphy, who complained of night terrors. He ends up working as a Trump White House aide, and now he's associate general counsel for the National Republican Congressional Committee. So you're talking about Republican operatives posing as average citizens here. But again, they're obviously tapping into some kind of anxiety on the part of suburban mothers that their children are being force-fed guilt. Is that what it's about? Well, um, this is uh, coded racial politics. And uh, and they're using parental concern uh, right now to drive this issue in the suburbs. And the idea that uh, somehow school officials are imposing obscene materials uh, on their children Uh, This comes at a time of um, social pessimism over COVID, over the economy, great anxieties, rising gas prices, uh, 
uh, President Biden's uh, approval rating uh, having sunk as the infrastructure and reconciliation bills are in suspension and the Democrats are uh, fractured and negotiating with themselves to pass it. And the election that exists right now is in Virginia for governor next Tuesday. And uh, Terry McAuliffe, who was a very popular and effective governor, is a Democratic candidate right now. Uh, in Virginia, uh, governors can only serve one term, but if they have served a term, they can run again, but not consecutively. So Terry McAuliffe is running again, and Glenn Youngkin is running against him. He's uh, running on this anxiety, and apparently um, he is seized on all the Trump issues. He's against abortion. He says he's personally taken vaccines, but against all mandates. And uh, he's, he's taken up the whole thing, but all that was not enough. So he had to go down this road and use this racial issue to try and stir up independent voters who are not that closely attuned to what all the facts are and are worried about their kids. So they've got this bogus campaign running. And as you mentioned, it's a dress rehearsal for the Republican campaigns in uh, 2022. And it's, you know, it appears to be working to some extent, since they're both Yonkin, uh, the Republican, and McAuliffe, the Democrat, are neck to neck in the polls. Unfortunately, the press are framing this and giving it a lot of oxygen, because they have set it up as a kind of weather vane for the fortunes or misfortunes of the Democrats. So if McAuliffe loses, there's a great deal of damage that can be done to the Democratic brand. Is that what's going on, Sydney? Well, if McAuliffe were to lose, it would uh, cause damage to the Democrats and affect uh, not only Biden's political standing, but it would also affect the Democratic Party going into the 2022 midterms. It might increase retirements of uh, incumbent members, uh, might affect recruitment, and it might also encourage the Republicans in terms of uh, recruitment of candidates. So to that extent, it is a referendum. But it's, as I said, it's also a laboratory of the kinds of tactics, poise, gambits, uh, and um, stratagems that the Republicans are testing now to see if they work. And whether or not Youngkin wins, and if he wins, all the better for them, they ha they are trying to show whether or not these ruthless, unprincipled tactics can work in other campaigns or variants on the theme. And uh, that's what's going on in Virginia. So uh, people should not think that it is reserved to the Commonwealth of Virginia, because this is headed your way. It's a Petri dish. It's a crucible and a laboratory. Well, heavens forbid that the Republicans should actually have policies, plans, and programs and run on that as they used to in the days of your fathers and grandfathers, Republicans. But this is Trump's Republican Party, and it's thoroughly poisonous and completely cynical. And this is essentially, you know, running on critical race theory as though it's being taught to the delicate children in Virginia is a complete lie because it's not taught anywhere, as a matter of fact. But they've hoisted this, and Youngkin is pounding away at it. So the, the idea that 
this guy who's the kind of weather vane for the Republicans could get elected on a lie or on a series of lies really tells you how effective propaganda is if indeed you needed that lesson. So this is what's happening to the United States writ large, isn't it, Sidney Blumenthal? That we are being propagandized, at least at least 30% of the country is in the Fox, Breitbart, you know, Sinclair, Newsmax, uh, AONN bubble. So this is broadening out from that bubble, though, isn't it, into suburban mums? Well, uh, Virginia is a state that has trended increasingly democratic over the years. It used to be one of the most reliable Republican states, but that uh, changed uh, fairly recently. And a lot of it has to do with the growth of the suburbs of Northern Virginia, which are Washington DC suburbs. And the state has now elected a uh, democratic majority uh, general assembly and a succession of Democratic governors in a row. Uh, And it's uh, based in great part on a coalition of um, uh, black votes, urban votes, and um, this growing suburban vote, and a diverse vote. Um, uh, There's a growing um, Latino vote in uh, Virginia, there is a a growing Asian vote in Virginia. So this is a Republican strategy to try and cut what is a trend towards the Democrats in the suburbs. And they have focused on parental anxiety and seized upon it. And they've targeted uh, mostly independent voters who have moved enormously to favor Yunkin based entirely on this bogus propaganda campaign about um, the the dire threat of Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved, which is a symbol of, they have said, of parental control of the schools uh, and um, other um, incidents which are not political at all, like a uh, random uh, sexual assault in a suburban school somewhere, um, which they now uh, blame on the Democrats. Uh, in, uh, and it's an attempt to, um, to conjure up uh, a kind of new Willie Horton. If you can remember the 1988 campaign in which George H.W. Bush's campaign and his surrogates, including his media maestro, Roger Ailes, who was the founder of Fox News, um, created a black rapist who uh, the Democratic candidate, uh, Governor Michael Dukakis, Massachusetts, under a furlough program, had allowed to get out of jail. And this is all Willie Hortonism and looking for abstracted versions of it, uh, symbolic versions of it. And it seems to be working. These are all test cases for the future, and it's an attempt to cut into what is uh, the democratic uh, strength growing in the suburbs. Well, if it's a test case for the future, what it's doing, though, is rewriting the past. And this is the great American tragedy, isn't it? You're an historian. You're doing these amazing books on Abraham Lincoln, Sidney Blumenthal. And 
we need to know about what happened, particularly in the state of Virginia, as you point out in your article at The Guardian. That, I'm going to raise that, Ian. If well, I you've can... got Senator James Mason of Virginia, who sponsored the Fugitive Slave Act, and in, in 1856, Margaret Garner escaped from her Kentucky plantation into the free state of Ohio. She was the daughter of her owner and had been repeatedly raped by his brother, her uncle, and gave birth to four children. And when she was cornered by slave hunters operating under the Fugitive Slave Act, she killed her two-year-old and attempted to kill her other children to spare them her fate. And then she was then, of course, forcibly returned into slavery where she died of typhus. Now, to some extent, that was the inspiration for Toni Morrison, wasn't it? That's a true story. About that fugitive slave. Uh, who who was hunted down, rounded up, killed her child, um, so she wouldn't uh, have to be a sex slave like she was, uh, was due to uh, the Fugitive Slave Act sponsored by a Virginia senator. Now, immediately following that incident in 1856, there was an incident, another incident in Virginia, and that involved a white woman who established a school for black children she w- that was illegal in Virginia at the time, and she was sentenced to jail for doing it. Uh, so flash forward a hundred years then to the almost hundred years to the uh, eighteen to the nineteen fifties after Brown v. Uh, Board of Education out uh, declaring that um, segregated schools were unconstitutional in Virginia for two years. Uh, the uh, General Assembly and the governor and the entire political leadership of the state shut down the public schools in an act called Massive Resistance to Integration. Two years, public schools were shut down, Massive Resistance in Virginia, rather than um, uh, follow and submit to the law of the land of uh, integrated schools. And, um, that, uh, and then there's a recent history in Virginia that we're all living with, that we're all aware of, involving what happened in uh, Charlottesville, uh, the violent rally of neo-Nazis to uh, preserve the statue, the Lost Cause statue of Robert E. Lee, the murders and violence that took place there, the trials that have just started in Charlottesville of the neo-Nazis, and the and the George Floyd Uh, demonstrations that have led to the Confederate statues on Monument Avenue uh, in uh, Richmond taken down, most recently the Robert E. Lee uh, statue. And that is the background in which uh, Glenn Youngkin and the Republicans are waging this symbolic, racially coded uh, campaign uh, around Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved. But if you look into the history, it goes all the way back to that incident of an actual slave that a Toni Morrison based her book on, who killed her child rather than deliver her unto slavery. And if children in uh, Virginia shouldn't read that book, uh, then they would be unaware of uh, their own history. And uh, this is about the suppression of history. It's about uh, the imposition of historical ignorance and the continuation of a regime of oppression and uh, blindness. Uh, And uh, this uh, smiling, uh, cheery, highly wealthy uh, corporate executive with 
who is uh, an empty suit, has adopted uh, a new persona as a Trumpster and is now a raging racial warrior in the culture wars of the contemporary Republican Party. And it is directly connected to the entire long and dark history of the Commonwealth of Virginia and our own country. And we're still battling these fights and uh, fighting over these questions. Uh, And they are unresolved and they are being fought in Virginia today. Well, Sidney Blumenthal, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Sidney Blumenthal, who's a former assistant and senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and a senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. He has been a national staff reporter for The Washington Post, Washington editor and staff writer for The New Yorker, and his books include the bestsellers The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment, and The Permanent Campaign. And his latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856 to 1860. And he has an article at The Guardian, The Republicans' Racial Culture War is Reaching New Heights in Virginia. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing the contrast between the crippling debate among Democrats over whether to spend $3.5 trillion on infrastructure over 10 years, while we are going to spend close to $10 trillion over 10 years on the Pentagon, and that doesn't even require a debate at all. Southern man better keep your head Don't forget what your good book says Southern change gonna come at last Now your crosses are burning fast Southern man Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Andrew Coburn, the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine and the author of many articles and books on national security, including Kill Chain, The Rise of the High-Tech Assassins, as well as the New York Times editor's choice, Rumsfeld and the Threat, which destroyed the myth of Soviet military superiority underpinning the Cold War. He has written for, among others, the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, National Geographic, and the London Review of Books. And his latest book just out is The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andrew Coben. Hey, Ian. Great to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Andrew. And we've just witnessed this agonizing debate amongst the Democrats, which has done them no favors and done Biden no favors, and he's Poll numbers have been tanking as they've wrangled over what was originally a $6 trillion infrastructure package over 10 years. It was Then they compromised with $3.5 trillion, and now they're down to $1.85 trillion over 10 years. Meanwhile, the Pentagon will spend at least $8 trillion over 10 years, and nobody's saying a damn thing about that. What's going on? Um, well, business as usual, I'd say. Um, by the way, I'd say you, you want to emphasize that at least on the eight trillion. I, I'd say um, ten years from now we'll be looking at probably ten trillion more, but uh, on the defense budget. But yeah, the, you know, it's a fine example of the priorities that have been, uh, not that we've chosen, but that have been forced on us that everything for the military industrial complex and the 
you know the corporate the corporate defense complex put it that way and pennies for you know student indebted students seniors needing help with vision hearing and uh, and dental um, you know all the other things that have been chopped out to make uh, while the defense spending gets waved through in fact gets amped up you have both parties congressmen and senators from both parties competing with each other to see how much more money they can shovel at the arms manufacturers. So why is it that it's difficult and controversial to improve the lives of Americans where it is absolutely doesn't even require debate and you get a blank check to kill people abroad? Well, you know, it's I'd say it's the product of decades of sustained propaganda um, really uh, I think it really sort of started to amp up it I mean it's been going on since the late 1940s when the uh, corporate America decided it needed a cold war and you know the peace dividend that followed World War II was abruptly reversed because uh, various people including particularly the aerospace manufacturers realized they couldn't make it in the civilian market. And so, you know, <laughs> the rest the rest of the history would take several hours to recount in full. But I would say it's really been going full strength since um, since the late 1970s. There was a brief period following the Vietnam War or during and following the Vietnam War where people were so disgusted with the, you know, the outward, the manifestation of the military industrial state in terms of slaughtering people in Southeast Asia, that there was a revulsion and the defense budget was briefly cut and there was a realignment in terms of social spending and so forth. And that was quickly put to rest. They whooped up another threat from the Soviet Union, which was completely fraudulent. Uh, and, um, you know, we've been off the races ever since. So the chances of today selling the the proposition that, hey, we don't need to spend you know, $750 billion a year minimum on uh, on weapons, you know, weapons that don't work to meet threats that don't exist. Whereas, you know, there are very urgent social needs that can be, should be addressed today. And, you know, the whole corporate media, the whole weight of political rhetoric is against this, tilted against that. It's like trying to say, you know, they do say black is white. <laughs> it's very hard to argue against that these days. Well, indeed, and your book, Spoils of War, points out that in the first winter of the Korean War in 1950, half of American casualties were caused by frostbite because U.S. soldiers hadn't been equipped with warm boots and they were forced to raid North Korean positions to steal uh, functional footwear. And, and my old friend, Colonel David Hackworth, who was the late Colonel David Hackworth, who was the most decorated U.S. soldier from the, both from the Korean War and the Vietnam War, he used to say, the Pentagon, it's all about the toys and not the boys. So, uh, Yeah, I mean, he was so right. It's all about the toys and well, rather the money for the toys. It's all about the money. Yeah, right. I agree. So is this also the fact that we haven't won a war since World War II? Is that a major factor here? Because, you know, I don't know how you justify the the current budget when you've got the Taliban with his hands full now against uh, ISIS, and that's supposed to be the biggest threat we have, except for some 
ISIS in, in Africa and, and all of this stuff, but it's nothing compared to the Soviet Union, which could have wiped us off the face of the earth, destroyed every American city they had targeted 24-7. We were f spending a fraction of the military budget back then of what we're spending now on a real threat that mercifully went away, but yet we have these kind of you know, amorphous threats, a handful of ragtag uh, you know, guys driving around the desert in pickup trucks. So how is it that we haven't somehow realized that we're spending more on defense today than we ever did, and we don't really have an enemy? Um, well, that's kind of irrelevant. I mean, we don't, you know, it's like um, it's one of the Marx Brothers films, uh, Treasure Hunter, I think, when they say, one of them, Chico says the the treasure is buried under the house next door. And Groucho says, uh, there is no house next door. And Chico says, okay, so we build one. I mean, <laughs> actually, it's the other way around. But anyway, um, you know, we don't have a we don't have a serious threat that threatens the national security of the United States, really. So we're inventing one. At the moment, it's the Chinese. Um, the no, you know, every day, practically many times a day now, we hear about, you know, the an existential threat from China, that the, how they're outpacing us, and oh my God, we have to spend more, and how they're ahead of us in everything from computers to ships to submarines to whatever it is you want money for, the Chinese are ahead and we need to, you know, gen up the threat. Um, winning or losing wars is kind of irrelevant. I mean, and by the way, let's give credit for we did we we conquered Grenada, if you remember, um, in the early in 1982. Um, I guess we did. Uh, well, you know, to be fair, we did uh, we did win the first Gulf War because basically the Iraqi army deserted en masse. They weren't going to fight for Saddam. But yeah, it's been one of pretty otherwise um, constant failure. But that doesn't matter, you know, because, and this is the point I'm really, one of the main points I try to put across in, in Spoils of War, is that it's not about defense. It's about the money. It's about the money and the sort of institutional power that services get, dependent on the size of their budgets. And that's what they fight over. And you'll find in, in the book I give, many, many examples. Um, you cited earlier, what did I say about, you know, the fact that the, all those poor American soldiers and Marines were getting frostbite in the first year of the Korean War, because all the money had gone for strategic bombers, nuclear bombers to go bomb Russia. Uh, the Russians didn't really have any strategic nuclear bombers at that point, and certainly not the Chinese. They had very few, and the Chinese had none at all, nor did the North Koreans, of course. But that's where the you know, that's where the economic power was, the bomber lobby. So the bomb, they got the money and the, the boot makers didn't have much power. So they didn't get the money. So soldiers and Marines had their feet frozen. Um, it's as simple as that. And again, I'm speaking with Andrew Coburn, the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine and the author of many articles and books on national security, including Kill Chain, The Rise of the High-Tech Assassins, as well as the New York Times editor's choice, Rumsfeld and the Threat. And his latest book just out is The Spoils of War, Power, Profit and the American War Machine. And your book, you mentioned the latest threat. The latest threat, of course, from China that's being ginned up here is 
the Chinese hypersonic nuclear-tipped weapon. Putin has boasted of having one, but there's serious technical reasons why that whole thing may be just a complete hoax. But that didn't stop the fact that in 2019, the CEO of Lockheed Martin broke ground on a new facility to develop hypersonic weapons with a golden shovel. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot believe out. that they, they didn't notice there was something wrong with the optics <laughs> there. <laughs> right. Well, I, and almost certainly we, the taxpayer, got billed for that shovel. <laughs> I didn't think to mention that, but I'm sure they that was billed to the government on a cost-plus basis. No doubt about it. Yeah, the uh, the hypersonic, you know, the, this last couple of there was a, you know, a, such a egregious piece of propaganda, you know, unloaded by the Pentagon on a over credulous reporter that the Chinese had tested a new and fearsome hypersonic weapon that could fly all around the world and then you know land only, as it said, two dozen miles from its target. And, you know, everyone immediately repeated this. Uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs have said this was close to a Sputnik moment, uh, you know, recalling, referencing the time when the Soviets orbited a satellite, uh, basically just a little radio transmitter in 1958, Sputnik. And that was, you know, a terrible shock to American uh, uh, American confidence, supposedly. And, you know, money, the money tree shook and poured dollars on the defense complex as a result. And, you know, obviously they're hoping for the same thing again. Not that, not, not that they're not having money poured or showered on them already, but they want even more. <clears throat> you know, the old joke is, you know, the you ask the generals how much is enough, and they say there's no such thing. Um, so with this missile, I should say, this Chinese, new fearsome Chinese hypersonic missile, it's palpable nonsense. The uh, Well, what it is, it seems most likely, is the Chinese have taken a failed U.S. program from the 1950s. It was called Dinosaur. Um, by 1961, we'd spent a billion dollars on it without it ever leaving the drawing board. And that was a lot of money in those days. Not so much now, but a billion dollars was worth really worth something back in 1960. And they've combined that. That was the idea of a glider, manned glider, that would fly, skip around the upper atmosphere uh, carrying nuclear weapons, you know, like uh, rocks, you know, ready to drop them on us when it passed overhead, like sort of rocks from a highway pass. And uh, they've combined that with a failed Soviet program from the 1970s uh, called FOBS, Fractional Orbiting... Uh, bombardment System. Yeah. Bombardment System, or uh, yeah. And that, you know, that, that didn't last long, like Dinosaur got cancelled, and the brilliant Chinese have managed to resurrect both of these. And, you know, if they've really done this, that's really what's happened, and we should cheer them on. You know, what a way to waste your money or your yuan or whatever, you know. Um, why should we worry about it? It's, it's really insulting that, and also depressing, it's insulting that the Pentagon, you know, can dump this kind of garbage on the public and depressing that it's so eagerly swallowed, you know, by responsible newspapers and on down the line. Well, as your book Spoils of War points out, Andrew Coburn, that generals 
and admirals today don't engage in unnecessary activities like trying to win wars, but instead, while they're days away from plotting how to join the board of General Dynamics six hours after their retirement party. And of course, one of the th- the other little pieces of information which I found appalling was that they, according to a Pentagon whistleblower, they were trying to procure helmets that protected soldiers from roadside bombs during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and the people who were behind that effort were ostracized. So, I mean, I remember Rumsfeld telling the troops in Iraq who asked him very plaintively saying, you know, look, our vehicles are getting blown up and we have to go and scavenge for, you know, protection material from wrecks. And Rumsfeld dismissively said, you go to war with the equipment that you have, you know. So yeah. They don't yeah. care. They don't care. I mean, um, that, you know, that is, I still find that shocking. I mean, I've been reporting this sort of thing for many decades now, as you well know. And I still find it shocking. You know, for example, during the uh, Iraq uh, and Afghan wars, families of enlisted soldiers and Marines were going into debt to buy necessary equipment for their sons and daughters, you know, body armor, night vision goggles. Isn't that disgusting? I mean, that we were, you know, it's like some sort of horrible... 18th century saga or something. You know, this is the 21st century. You know, they're so callous that they couldn't be bothered to, you know, equip the troops. I mean, you know, it's right in line with the story we've been discussing about boots in the Korean War. I mean, that still goes on. Um, You know, meanwhile, they spent hundreds of billions of dollars on esoteric systems like you know, one of the ones I offer, I offer quote is the uh, is something called Compass Call, Compass Call Nova, which was this um, plane that flew around over Iraq and I guess Afghanistan to detect uh, roadside bombs. At, it cost a hundred thousand dollars an hour to fly. Can you believe? And you know, they did a it was a classified report they did, I believe, in two thousand seven looking at the effectiveness of this, and they reported back no detectable effect. So this useless piece of junk was flying around at enormous cost while working-class families in back home were having to were going into debt to buy, you know, things that did do work a bit, like body armor. Um, I mean, how disgraceful this is. Well, just in closing then, Andrew Coburn, obviously... We know that the Beltway bandits are making out like crazy in the Northern Virginia area around the Pentagon as huge mansions for all of these parasites who are sucking off the nation's treasury. And by the way, even though, as we started out saying, 10 billion, uh, 10 trillion will be spent over the next 10 years on defense while they argue about how much to improve the lives for Americans and the infrastructure in this country, that number is if you actually look at the real military budget, because what they did was they parceled parts of the budget off in, for example, the Coast Guards in the Department of Transportation, nuclear weapons in the Department of Energy, sure. uh, the Veterans Administration, pensions. They, 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 the number would be much, much higher if you did an actual real well, accounting of the defense it's a really, budget. Uh, you're right. It's already actually around a trillion, actually. Right. So what, at the end of the day, can our listeners do about this? Demand that, you know, first of all, demand that your congressman pay attention. You know, I'll give you a quick example. I know we don't have much time. Uh, there's a 
one of the few successes of people trying to reform the Pentagon uh, some, was the creation in the 1980s of the, something called Director for Operational Test and Evaluation, which was a hugely important benefit plus that this was achieved. And it was an office to actually test weapons before we bought them, which you found obvious as, you know, you buy a car, you want to take it for a test drive. Well, this was the same principle applied to, you know, multi-billion dollar weapons programs. The military and the defense contractors have always hated this. Recently, there was a the new head of that office was nominated, and he showed this is someone with no experience of any kind of testing, uh, operational testing, um, and it looks like he's a complete friend of industry, and yet not a single congressman asked a proper question. Ever, not a single congressman or senator asked, "Have you any experience of operational testing?" I mean, no one paid me, and they don't. They'll sort of you'll find progressive ones to you know sound off about we spend too much on defense, but they've got to get into the details. They've got to you've got to explore and expose, you know, how this money is being basically stolen much of the time and certainly wasted. It's I mean blanket denunciations don't do it. You have to make the public aware of really what's going on. I would say I hope people find you know spoils of war my book useful in this way, but. It, this is, you know, we've the people, the taxpayers have to become better informed about what's going on. And there's a huge effort made to have them not understand, to fill them with sort of nonsense like Chinese hypersonic weapons and not realize, you know, all the very egregious, basically theft um, in a lot of cases and certainly corrupt wastage that's, uh, that's happening. That's one thing. Well, that's so, something to... <laughs> <laughs> to chew on. And I thank you for joining us here today, Andrew Coburn. Hey, Ian. Always a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. And again, I've been speaking with Andrew Coburn, the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine and the author of many articles and books on national security, including Kill Chain, The Rise of the High-Tech Assassins, as well as the New York Times editor's choice, Rumsfeld and the Threat, which destroyed the myth of Soviet military superiority underpinning the Cold War. And his latest book, Just Add, is The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Martin Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.